0: Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE, and this week's episode we're doing something a little bit different. If you're watching this week, we're not just on audio, we're on video, and it's because we're coming to you live from the Radius Missiology Conference at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And we are bringing you some exclusive content. Uh, At the conference on day one, we captured an exclusive panel with Wayne Chen, Brad Buser, Chad Vegas, and Paul Davis of ABWE. Had an exciting and critical conversation about what pastors can do to be more engaged in missions. And honestly, some of the things that are shocking that are happening in the missions world right now. So this week, we're gonna be bringing you that panel, and we'll be bringing you more content from this week as time goes on. And so, without further ado, enjoy today's exclusive episode. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications for ABWE International, joined by our illustrious panel here,
1: and of course, Scott, who can introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Scott Dunford. Yes, uh, I'm a church planter in the Bay Area of California and also work for ABWE and do the podcast with Alex, so it's really good to be here. The Missions Podcast is an outreach of ABWE.
0: Our booth set out just outside these doors here. And we've been recording live uh, content and streaming that out. And so if you follow the missions podcast, you'll be able to get sort of the live play by play on RMC 21. We're super grateful to Bethlehem Baptist Church for hosting this, as well as for Radius International for allowing us to be a part of what's happening here this week. But enough about all of that. We wanted to take some time and sort of pull away and discuss the issues that are being discussed these two days and really talk specifically about what it means for local church pastors to get intimately involved in the process of sending missionaries, knowing that there's some discernment work that's required there in that. So as we sort of tee things off, first I'm going to ask these guys to introduce themselves and then uh, we'll dive into our topic. So Chad, can you start?
2: Yeah, my name's name's Chad Vegas, uh, pastor of Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield and um, president, well, chairman of the board of Radius International and I guess president of Radius Theological Institute as well. Does does Brad know you just took his job or no? Brad Brad doesn't. Brad's the director of something. Brooks is the president of Radius International.
3: My name is Paul Davis, and uh, I have been a pastor for thirty years. And currently, I'm the president of the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism ABWE.
4: My name is Wayne Chan. I was a pastor and a missionary overseas for years, and now I am the director for Radius Asia. <clears throat> My name is Brad Buser. Uh We served overseas uh, for a little over
5: 20 years, planted a church there, came back, uh, saw a need uh, for this thing that's called Radius International, and myself and a few others helped found it. So
0: show of hands, who here has read Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper? A uh, vast majority of hands in the room. That's not common <laughs> if you were to go to, to churches, right, but this is a particular place where many of us owe this church and everything that's come out of yeah. that ministry for the reason that we're interested in missions here today. And. Kind of part of this conversation is the fact that here we are 20 years later, what's next? Scott, this is kind of a homecoming for you.
1: Yeah, so when I was in seminary, I started coming to Bethlehem Baptist Church when it was downtown only. And it was around that time I grew up in a very revivalistic tradition, uh, a lot of passion about missions, um, but very little theological like, understanding of it. And it was really sitting at Bethlehem Baptist and hearing the, 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 pe- the preaching of Pastor John and then the teaching that came out of Let the Nations Be Glad that really helped me connect that that theological vision of the glory of God and vision and missions as the main motivator for missions with that heart for the lost people and the the burden of the nations and so as we were talking about that you know that was now 15 actually much more than 15 years ago over 20 years ago um that that John Piper was preaching on some of those ideas and kind of capturing a a generation's uh, uh interest in the glory of God and missions I want to ask you guys, as leaders in missions, but also pastors and leaders, what is that next, next lost thing in missions? You know, we, we, the glory of God in missions is part of the scripture. We didn't, he, didn't, he didn't make it up. He re, re, rediscovered it for a generation. What do you think this next generation that we need to rediscover in missions as you look around the missions landscape? Let's start with you, Brad, uh, and then we'll, I would like each of you to answer that.
5: Yeah, I think if we're, <clears throat> if we're serious about the Great Commission, we need to go back and rediscover historic methods for gospel propagation, the centrality of church planting, uh, the centrality of actually communicating clearly the gospel. Uh, unfortunately, in this day and age, uh, those have been shrouded over by some very uh, new, uh, creative, uh, pragmatic approaches. And uh, <clears throat> it's really encouraging to be here this week and just realize how many churches are waking up to, to the departure from historic methods. I think that's really going to do a long ways towards seeing the Great Commission mission accomplished.
4: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I would say Brad took the words right, right on my mouth. Um, kind of going back to what we are doing before, I think the whole last season, I know you guys in the U.S., you guys are just coming out of the COVID restrictions, but I, I, I mean, think about it, in the last 18 months, like no church sent out short mission teams, so if we actually look at the history of missions or even the history of the church, the ability to put a group of young people on the flight, send them somewhere halfway around the world, have them visit a night market and then come back um, and, and do some program-based ministry over there. That, that that That's not common. That's not assumed yet though in the last 20, 30 years, that's what a lot of people see getting involved with missions means. And I think, that was, I, I mean, all the restriction with COVID. I think it's a good reminder for us to go back to the historic, incarnational, long-term uh, methods of church planting. So,
3: you know, very simply in a nutshell, uh, I'm concerned about something as basic as conversion, mm. um, like a true conversion. We can talk about church planting. We can talk about disciples and making disciples. But before we can make a disciple, they have to be converted, uh, repent and be baptized. You know, we're just a basic understanding of conversion. I think we're missing it. Uh, I think we've uh, we've propelled past it because we want to plant churches. We want to um, have, you know, make groups of discipleships that that can convert into churches. But we've forgotten that. Um, at the very basic core, if we don't know what conversion is, if we, if we can't articulate the gospel in a clear way where there's been a radical transformation, where the old has become new, where Christ is now seated on the throne of our hearts and our lives. Um, I, I think some of the other things, I think, I think we're seeing fruit, many of the fruits of the problems that we're seeing in other areas are really a result of a lack of understanding true conversion.
2: That's good. I would probably um, kind of sum up what these guys are saying with three, three areas that I, I'm concerned about. We've been concerned about at Radius, so this isn't me on my own, but this is even through our conversations, and particularly with my conversations with Brad and Brooks over the years. One would be um, what Paul just mentioned, clarity on what the gospel is and on how conversion happens or what conversion is. I think that would be a big one. There seems to be a a growing lack of clarity on the gospel itself, um, the, the second one would be what the church is, yeah. and i don 't mean church polity, um, particularly, I mean what is the nature of the church, like what is a church, right. so elders, deacons, members, communion, baptism, preaching of the gospel, believers gathered, you know that kind of that kind of thing, um, and then thirdly. And probably one that we dive into the most is um, is sort of killing this notion that seems quite popular because we have a therapeutic sort of gospel happening now of of everybody needing to thrive and everybody needing to be you know like feel like their life was significant and meaningful and they were world changers and all of this sort of prosperity nonsense. To be clear about that, if I'm it, we need to come back to the basic command that we endure, that we persevere in suffering as good soldiers for Jesus Christ. Um, you may get to the end of your life and find that from the world's perspective, it didn't amount to much. It didn't change much of anything. You suffered a lot. Um, you preached Christ a lot. You may have seen a church planted, and there might be a real small cadre of people on this planet that think that's a great use of your life. And that's fine. You might not feel like it was particularly satisfying um, in the sense of what, the way the world now pursues satisfying ourselves, um, but Christians need to get over that. We, we aren't here to live out our dreams. We're here to live out Christ's commission, so. There's a lot of meat there, and there's a lot
0: that we could dive in on, but w- one of the things here—we've we've sort of talked around a couple of issues that are affecting modern missions. Maybe we need to be more explicit Uh, for individuals interested in going or for pastors and other church leaders interested in helping send. What are some things from your perspective being involved at the helm here that would surprise somebody to learn about what's happening in the contemporary world of missions? What would shock people?
1: we don't have buzzers, so it's a free-for-all. Especially pastors. You know, pastors get surprised by what's happening on the mission field. You guys have—many of you are pastors or have been pastors. Most of you have a lot of experience in missions. What would pastors be surprised to hear?
5: I think pastors would be surprised to hear that many missionaries are entrusting to unsaved people the leading of Bible studies. I think many pastors would be surprised— that non-regenerate people are being asked to obey God and in some way we're surprised at uh, the amount of recidivism that's happening in Islam. They're never truly lost. They're never truly broken. They're they're, giving, they're given ways to give cookies to God by these little acts of obedience and so they, they don't understand the depths of their sin. Um, the lack of clear conversion, it's obvious. Uh, again, uh, the ideas of self-correction, self-revelation, you have no need of a teacher. The Spirit of God will make it clear to you? Well, Jesus was talking to the disciples in John 16 and we're trusting that unsaved people that are coming from a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist animistic background will figure it out. The spirit of God will come upon them. Um, yeah, That's just the tip of the iceberg.
3: One of the things I would say is the amount of time that it takes for a good missionary to do good biblical evangelism and discipleship. Uh, you know, in the United States, you, you see churches planting 10 campuses in five years. And many pastors, I think, wonder, well, why isn't that happening with my missionaries that I'm supporting so much a month? And, and it takes an incredible amount of time just for a missionary to get acclimated and, and learning the culture, to be able to to speak into the issues that, that people are dealing with in their hearts That have to be addressed for them to even understand the gospel. And so it takes a critical amount of time. And and I don't know. So I pastored for 30 years. I didn't know. I didn't realize how much time it took because I had only done ministry within my culture. And I could do things way faster in my culture than, than we can do cross-culturally. And so um, that surprised me, you know, when I became president of a mission agency, that was my big wake-up call. Like, it takes a lot of time. Can, can I follow that real quick before you jump in, Wayne?
2: So I'm, I'm a pastor maybe who was surprised by a couple of things. I planted a church. I've been at it for 15 years I find it startling when missionaries tell me they planted a church inside of a year in another language and culture because it, I've been working to death to do it in my own language and culture. The city I was born and raised in for years to have a healthy, reproducing, self-sustaining church, that has taken a lot of toil, which I'm thankful. It's not a complaint, but the notion that that would be done inside of months? That seems insane to me, especially in another language and culture. In fact, I, I'll just call it what it is. It's a fairy tale. It isn't actually happening. Whatever is happening out there, these church planting, I planted 1,000 churches this year, that person's just um, either believing um, their own fairy tale or they're out and out knowingly lying. But there isn't any other option. There's no other option. That's, that's just not happening. It's, it's, it's nonsense. uh, uh, And I'm happy to talk to anybody about why that's clearly what it is. We just need to call it what it is. As pastors, we know it smells bad when they come in and tell us that. Um, But then we say, well, it's overseas. Like, somehow, when, when you cross a geographic or linguistic boundary, the Holy Spirit's just different. Over here, he's a little dull and inactive. Over there, he's amazing. He's just doing incredible things. And man has just changed the nature of man and sin and who God is and what the gospel is and how ministry happens, and the teaching of the word. It's just all different. It's all different. And we just need to get over that. It's not different. Those are human beings. They struggle with the same sins we struggle with. Um, They are under the same condemnation we're under. Uh, The Holy Spirit works the same way among them that he works among us through the word because they're human beings and the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit and God does not change We just need to be clear about that. Um, I don't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't isn't at times pleased to do things um, that that are extraordinary, but we know when that happens because they are extraordinary. They aren't ordinary. They aren't methods that we're commanded to participate in. They're extraordinary things, and we just need to recognize that. The other thing is that was startling to me is I heard a missionary tell me that Muslims don't actually need to leave Islam um in conversion they can become christians who believe jesus um is the messiah and who read the injeel the gospels and and they're good to go as christians even if they're not willing to say that the quran is errant um that even if they say the quran is the word of god they can still be christians which shocks me because the quran expressly condemns christianity you can't say the Quran is the word of God and the Bible is the word of God when the Quran expressly and condemns Christianity. So I, I, I was shocked by that. I have a list, but I will keep going. Go ahead, Wade. <laughs> um,
4: going back to one of the points that, that Brad mentioned, and that's what shocked me the most. I, I finished my missionary church planning uh, season in 2017. So um, we're talking about years of actively teaching a first-generation church to disciple them into maturity. And, and, and once I came out of that context, I was told that what I did, teaching, um, is bad. Um, teaching is um, actively discouraged uh, right now in, in in some methodologies, saying missionaries really should not teach. We should only facilitate. It kind of goes back to what Brad was talking about the the self-revelatory nature of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will guide them to truth. So teaching is somehow it, it is shocking that. Something that's mandated and commanded for shepherds and elders to do in the Bible now um, is labeled as paternalistic or um, colonial. You, you you don't want that label. So don't teach. You, you just facilitate. Let the spirit guide them to truth. Now, if we apply the same principle here in our own churches— uh, It it, it just doesn't register. Something, something is missing somehow. When you hop on that one-way flight uh, overseas, we just yeah, we just take on something, yeah, something that won't work here suddenly work miraculously. So. Chad had a comment. I, I just have to say, there's, it's ironic that Wayne is being referred
2: to as a Western, Western imperialist. <laughs> there's something strange about that, isn't it, California. by teaching and baptizing. <laughs> I was actually told by a major missionary leader at, at the U.S. Center for World Missions that to baptize people is a Western thing. Uh, somebody's explained that to John the Baptist. Jesus and the apostles, none of whom were Westerners, Um, but this is the kind of stuff that's floating around out there. It's shocking. This is a leader at the U.S. Center for World Missions who preached this in a sermon. I have audio of, by the way. Um, It's actually going to be in, you refer to it in our book, don't you, Alex? I do, yes. So,
0: yeah, Chad and I have a a book coming out at some point. Now, I want to ask you guys, how did we Get here? So we've, we've highlighted a number of things, you know, from insider movement to saying that we can teach unregenerate persons to obey God's law and the commands and teachings of Christ. How do we even get to this point? So I think a lot of us in this room have learned about some of what's happening, but what brought us here? Hmm.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for it. But I think a lot, in some ways, uh, churches, uh, they don't have time to investigate methodologies and they get so complex. At times you feel like you're talking to a Mormon, same terms, but I know you're defining it way different. Uh, you have to almost get rude and pointed to define that term for me. It takes a lot of study and, <clears throat> and persistence to find out what's being employed in methods. And so uh, to be honest with you, most senior pastors, they have so many needs within their congregation. They're hoping that their missions point people will have the time, those guys get worn down too. Nobody likes to be rude on a telephone. And so to get a clear answer, you know what, you're a missionary, you probably buried a kid overseas. I'm not going to doubt your integrity. And so uh, agencies have gotten a pass by and large for probably at least the last 20, 25 years.
1: I would say, uh, if I can just jump in real quick, you know, having worked in an Islamic context, uh, some of these people that are practicing these things, have really good intentions, like, they, they, they love the people that they're trying to minister to, and they're not seeing fruit, and And then they hear about something that's going on that seems a lot more effective than what they're doing, and so they, they they adapt, and I've heard some of these testimonies of like, you know, I have, you know, seven generations of converts, I'm the first one I've ever met that has this many converts, and then he's talking to me about how he's, you know, praying in the mosque with people and just getting them to just just tweak the, you know, their sayings, and they're fine. And it, it, it comes out of a good starting place, but it gets really diabolical in the end. And the fruit in the in the converts is is absolute chaos. You know, if you've ever followed up with some of these methods and what's going on, uh, just even the struggle is 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 internally is struggle. Who am I? I'm not a, Am I a Christian? Am I Muslim? It's a problem. Well, Chad, you have a friend
0: who's an Imam in Bakersfield area, right? And and you said, hey. Uh, if, if you had an Islamic congregant, right, a member of your community who was studying the Injeel, wanted to learn how to follow the prophet Isa, how
2: would you respond to that person? How did your Imam friend? Yeah, he's, he's actually an emir, which is kind of like the political leader of the area, but he was an Imam, and then he's over the four Sunni mosques in my city. And we meet fairly regularly and have breakfast and, and um... And it's good, we have these talks, but I asked him that question, if a, because I keep hearing about this, Muslim dreams kind of discussions, so I asked him, what do you think, if, if a Muslim told me he had a dream of, he saw of Jesus, if he had a dream of Jesus, Jesus came to him and told him to read the Injil, and he started reading it and obeying it, what would you call that person? And his response to me was, a good Muslim. And I said, why? He says, because... Um, that's normal in the Muslim life, at least in my circles. I've had a dream of Jesus. He came to me and told me to read the Injil. I had a dream of Muhammad who told me to read the Quran. And I had a dream of Moses who told me to read the Old Testament or the law, which specifically the Torah. Um, and that's what good Muslims do. They read the scriptures and they follow what the prophets say, they obey them. Good Muslims obey their prophets of whom Jesus is one. He is one. So we believe in Him as the Messiah, and we obey Him as the Messiah, whom they believe is going to return to rule and reign on earth. And if you know that. They believe Jesus will return. He will ru- rule and reign on earth, um, and He will enforce Islam um, across, across the planet. So that they, they're not opposed to Jesus. It's the first time they heard of Jesus isn't usually in a dream. He, he's discussed um, in Islam. Um, You have the law, Moses, the angel Jesus, and then the final prophet, the the supreme prophet, Muhammad. Um, And it's not unusual in their minds for for Jesus to appear to you in a dream and tell you to obey the Gospels. Of course you should. That's a good Muslim. But we call it conversion here now. So were you going to say something, Paul?
3: Well, getting back to your original question, you know, one of the, the... How did we get here? I think one of the big things that I've seen is that we've divorced the local church um, in, in large parts. You know, we've got biblical local churches that are reproducing, that are discipling and teaching the whole counsel of the word of God. And then they raise up young men who go to college and spend four years away from their home church in college in a, in a setting where they're not being discipled and trained um, to obey the, the scriptures. Um, but maybe they're getting good education. And then a mission agency, and as the president, of, let me just throw the mission agency under the bus here for a second. Um, then the mission agency takes over and does some training. And then we send them out on the field. And they're at least one, if not two steps away from their local church. And And I think Part of the solution is putting biblical local churches back at the heart of, of mission sending. So it's okay. one of the reasons I think that we got here.
1: I, I'm going to change this a little bit, because I, I don't want to—there's a lot of awesome things happening, too. Uh, you know, you, Brad, I know you've, you've talked to Radius graduates that are going out, and you're hearing reports as pastors. You guys have seen it. Wayne, you're serving in a totally different setting with different churches in Asia. What are some of the things, just briefly, just so we encourage our hearts with all the things that God's doing around the world, that, that get you juiced up in the morning that you're seeing God doing around the world?
5: Yeah, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> to uh, to see the Radius graduates, the, the, the way they come in, the way they go out, uh, God is raising up incredible young men, women, couples, uh, at great price to themselves, uh, walking away from wonderful jobs, great futures, uh, hazarding their children for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Greatest generation, it's not dead. Uh, These young people today, they will lay their lives down for the gospel and to get to interact with them, follow their journeys, see the discipline they exercise when they get into these next language contexts. Uh, Learning first languages, most of our graduates are still learning first languages, but some of them, some of them even here at the conference are into their second language. And just, you know, nothing easy about it. And Chad hit it. You know, they're they're done with the thriving. Man, they realize their life is going to be enduring. But man, to rub shoulders with these folks. um, Man, just earlier today, had a seminar on local churches and uh, man it's encouraging to me to see nearly every hand in that room is now aware of some of the methods that are out there so the church, local churches are waking up, they're asking harder questions, these are great things, uh, see the attendance here uh, versus just even two
4: years ago when we had it in the other church uh, yeah, a lot to be encouraged about
3: yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, you know what, the first uh, family out of radius Asia uh, went to the field about six months ago went to Africa uh, they had about a 6 weeks honeymoon period where everything went well, and then the country held an election, and the rebel armies moved in. They they started packing, you know, grabbing the go pack, and then the rebels backed off. They unpacked, and they packed again. I mean, they were going through the ring. I, I, I mean, they were packing and packing every day. Finally, they were evacuated, and... Um, the rebel army is going to die down or backed off. They came back. And right after that, they contracted COVID. They were laid up for two weeks. And this is a young family with three kids all oh, under six. And, and they're going, you know what? We expected this. Remember Brooks was talking about light and momentary afflictions. Um, a lot of people told. I, I think I think Radius International got the same feedback when when we started Radius Asia in Taiwan. People said, you know what, young people today they don't they don't do trainings like this anymore. You know, they want it fast. They want it easy. Like you guys are putting too much emphasis on suffering as a tool. I, I mean, they, they, it's just like you know what, make it shorter. Make it more palatable to people. Um, I am encouraged just to see that. You know what. The same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul is still living in us, in the young people today. And the same, same great commission is still upon us. And I am, um, yeah, I am encouraged. So, And we've shared
3: some critiques of some methodologies up here, but we have to remind ourselves what missionaries are doing. You know, individuals and couples and families are leaving everything and they're going to a, a culture that doesn't want them many times, um, that isn't welcoming. And they're trying to insert themselves in for the sake of the gospel to serve their Lord. And they're raising their families and they're, they're living and they're dying on this, on this field in order to reach these people for Jesus Christ. And I mean, I, I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. And I I don't think we should ever get over it. And again, we can critique methods and we want to do our our best, right? But we want to celebrate these men and women who uh, have the gospel, that participate in in, uh, Bible-believing churches, that send them to create Bible-believing churches, gospel-centered churches that are reproducing well, and it's, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I, I don't want to get over that excitement.
2: I, I think I would start with um, the Y M B Yemby and the Teddy and the BM um, people groups who— um, well, I could say two of them are represented here by Brad. Brad and Brooks went to the MB MB. Brad went to the Teddy. Wayne went to the BM. As as did Brad's other son, Brandon, who was Wayne's partner. To see the work the Lord has done in those people groups through these faithful men is is incredibly encouraging. If you stayed in here and watched Brooks, the. And, tail end of Brooks's film. If you haven't seen NBM Into the Nations, you should watch it. We show it to all of our membership classes. It's one of the requirements to come into membership at our church, you have to watch this film. We have a training on missions. It's incredibly moving um, every time to see what the Lord has done there. Um, so that's encouraging. Our own missionaries that we've sent out encourage me. Um, I, I don't want to name them or their location, their people group at this point because they're in a closed country. but. Um, One of the couples who's going there was a couple who, uh, the gal was the first missionary my church ever sent out. Um, She, she was a single gal. We knew we wanted to do missions, but no one had ever sort of stepped forward until her. And then after her, the sort of floodgates, you know, kind of broke loose, if you will. But she was the first part of the first graduating class of Radius, which um, when we started Radius, Brad and I and some others, Um, we found our first year woefully inadequate and sort of apologized to the class. Like we had a good idea. It was great in concept, poor in execution. So we needed to improve that. But she went out of that class, the great attitude, went to India, was there nearly seven years. And because of a set of circumstances, we as elders had to sit down with her and her husband and redirect them to a whole nother country, a whole nother language. They're going to learn two more languages, a new culture. And a lot of that's the result, I'm just going to be entirely frank with you, a lot of that's the result of it was the first missionary we were sent. We didn't know what we were doing, and we did not guide her well. We failed miserably as a local church in her life, um, as those who sent her. Um, We learned a lot of lessons from it. Uh, What blows me away or encourages me or humbles me is the fact that she was willing to take that blow for the sake of future missionaries being sent from our church. Um, to be sent well for the sake of Radius to improve what we were doing in training, and she and her husband are going to go to a whole other people group in a whole other country, learn a whole other language and culture or two languages, and they're going to do that. That's humbling. It's incredibly humbling as a pastor. I'm very encouraged by that, and just the Radius students. Every time I go there and teach, I think, I, I know I know more about the Bible than these students because of my years of training and study, but I don't know that I believe it as much as they do. Because of what they're willing to give their lives to, it's it's just an incredibly humbling thing to be a part of and be around. So, if I could if I could also answer your question, Scott, something that excites me not
0: being on the front lines, being on the supply lines at the headquarters of ABWE, um, you know, part of the attraction of these methodologies is the grandiose language of you know movements and multiplication and those sorts of things and that can be incredibly harming to pursue as an end in itself. What's cool is when you see it done well. Hmm. So I get really excited when I look at a place like Togo in West Africa, where there's been what I would characterize as a legitimate movement of churches that are being planted, uh, genuine conversions. Granted, mistakes made along the way. I I love that you can own that so transparently, Chad. Um, Mistakes made along the way, and yet, we would look and say, okay, well, why would we say there's been a movement? Why have there been, you know, 80 plus church? Well, it's, it's because there's been a team of missionaries sent out by local churches that's been there for more than 40 years learning language and culture. Right. Similar things in a country like Bangladesh. Uh, over 60 years there doing culture and language acquisition and proclaiming the gospel. So these things can have an incredible movement impact if we can use that term if we can redeem that term right plunder the egyptians a little bit
1: if done well yeah. if done in a healthy way so that kind of leads to the next question. Did you want to hop in? Well, I mean, just, you know, where I'm at in, in in Northern California, it's almost everyone's Indian. And to meet Indian believers who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, my great-grandfather was led to the Lord by William Carey. And you're like, okay, there's a generational th- impact that we have to keep in mind. It, we're, we're not it's not it doesn't live and die with just our, our 70 years on, on Earth here. Um, that's a good, great reminder. Um, so— we, we train missionaries in essential things, you know, we talk about language. Uh, I, I was telling Alex, I remember something that, that Brad told me, He doesn't. he'll never remember, but I was in Perry, Michigan, his father-in-law was a pastor, one town over, and we sat across, I was interested in missions, and Brad said, Scott, missions is language. Just learn a language, learn another language. You're going to keep learning languages because that's the key. You know, that's like the foundational. Like, I still remember that advice. I don't know if you still hold to that or not, but uh, it it sticks in my mind. Many years later, probably 20 years later, um, we we talk about language. We talk about theology. We talk about endurance and suffering. Um, One thing we... I feel like is missed not by you men, but is missed in our training. We see it a lot as we're talking to people. Is this concept of a local church? And I don't know how we miss this, but as we even think about like the definition of what is a local church, like that's becoming like one of the biggest battlegrounds and missions today. Is like what constitutes a church? Um, is it just two or three guys reading you know reading a gospel track somewhere? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and sometimes it seems like that is the definition that is being thrown thrown around there. So I, I I know this is a softball question, but I'm, I'm teeing you guys up. Uh, how how do how essential is it to teach missionaries what is a local church?
5: Yeah, we were. Uh- our first few years not at Radius, we were pretty shocked as we had various agencies come down. And one of the questions our students would ask them uh, is, what's your definition of a local church? We literally had a husband and wife team just look at each other like they'd never fielded that question. Uh, it just was off the radar for them. Uh, pretty soon, people that came down to Radius realized they have to dig through the archives and find their, their agency definition of a church. So they're ready for that one now, but uh, that's how relevant that was because, again, the idea of making disciples, disciple making movement, making disciples had just taken over the discussion. So the centrality of the local church as the goal, not to uh, eclipse the other the many relevant critical stages. But if you haven't planted a church, it's a one-generation form of evangelism. Somebody's going to have to come right back in there, learn all the languages, go through the hardships, and start from scratch, except they'll be at a deficit. If you haven't left a church behind, those believers eventually are going to frizzle out. They're going to go away. They have no history of church in, within those remote cultures. It's just going to go away. And But what's not going to go away is the bad taste left in the mouth within those people. When first missionaries leave, man, you've set the gospel back. And so that's why we talk a lot about finishing, 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 a lot of relevant, a lot of very important stages. But if they don't leave that church behind in a healthy state, fully developed, not you know nine marks developed, but man, you have recognized capable leadership Man, they're doing the ordinances. ordinances. They're meeting regularly. There are people that are sitting under the teaching of God's word. There's genuine spiritual life there. Uh, these are some of the attributes that we say that's, you've got to have at least that, at least that before you consider leaving that local
4: church. Um, I want to ask something really quick, and I'll give the time to you guys. I think the current definition of, of a church is largely driven by our need to count them. Need to count. To count them um, for our movements, for, for our numbers. Um, and I don't think that's a healthy place to start. So. That'll preach, but okay. Uh, the, the only
2: thing I would probably add in there is there are missionaries who are concerned uh, and missiologists who are concerned about prior generations and we might go back a few generations where a church was a reproduction of something that we saw on a corner in North America with this kind of building, these kind of clothing, this kind of clothing, these kind of musical instruments, what have you. It was like reproducing Western culture in another place. And so they wanted to push against that, which I entirely understand why they want to push against that because that's it's not what a church is. Those are the particular, that's a particular cultural garb our local churches take, and that's appropriate. But those local churches are gonna take some different looking cultural garb, and that's fine. So the question is, what is a church? And I wish we would not have gone so far afield from what the Protestants delivered to us. Because the Protestant Reformation delivered to us a definition of the church. Uh, you can find in nearly every Protestant confession, And it was real simple. A church has sound preaching of the word of God or the gospel, one. Two, it has the proper administration of the sacraments or ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then if you want to sneak a third in there, it's associated with that. There's church discipline. Um, that happens which means you have some kind of elders deacons and members in other words those those components are kind of caught up there really in what people might say two or three marks of the church if you go to the belgic confession i think it might say two marks i'm not i don't remember p- precisely but that's essentially the definition of a church the protestants delivered to us and we can reproduce that in every culture on earth and put it doesn't have to have the same cultural garb but it does have to have the same ascent, the same essence to it. So
3: I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget that the church is the body of Christ. And so if Satan is going to try to distort something, if he's going to try to warp something and make it uh, just a, a little bit of a lie like he did in the garden, right? And then he, he just twisted God's words in the garden. Um, I think he's going to distort the church. And I think we need to be aware. That, that's what we need to be vigilant against. And I, and I think some of us, you said it's a softball question. The reason why some of us are concerned is because we understand this is what Satan's after. Um, you know, we can build hospitals around the globe, and, and it's wonderful. And if they're, if they're a little off in their theology, you can still heal pe- people, um, if the church is a little bit off in their presentation of the gospel, that's not the church anymore. And Satan has, has, has won a victory. And maybe we've imported some Western culture. Or maybe we've imported some, what, quote, unquote, civilization or something that we, we think we've brought. But we didn't bring the church. And so uh, that's what we're concerned about.
5: Yeah, I just add one more thing going to what Wayne is saying on the press for numbers. I had a, a wonderful conversation a couple of years ago with the missions pastor, a sharp guy, very sober, clear speaker, understood the worldwide situation. He'd served overseas with a very theologically solid agency. He was told by his superior, direct superior, not way up the chain, uh, that if he, because he reported meant just complete lack of success, you know, in the, you know, evangelism, discipleship, um, you know, church planning for sure. And uh, so the the leader probed him a little bit and uh, he realized he was taking a lot of people uh, to have cups of coffee. And uh, he asked how many of those discussions occurred when you had a Bible on the table. And he said, a lot of them he said you can count that as a church planted because what that could turn into, you have no idea. Don't limit the spirit of God. So the, the number counting gets pretty tenuous. And again, this isn't a guy who's prone to exaggeration. This is not a fly by night, night organization. Uh, yeah, to his credit, he said, finally, I just ended up watching every Netflix my computer could download, and then I left the field. And, and I say that to his credit. You know, he realized he wasn't getting anything done.
0: One of the things that also drives this unhealthy definition of a church is if you were to ask the average either person in church or believer or a missionary candidate, you know, this would be a good diagnostic question for a potential missionary candidate, is why is it necessary to go to church? And the thing that you'll hear are a lot of responses that are instrumental means. So in other words, well, it will help your self, uh, sanctification. Uh, it will give you accountability. Uh, you will be enriched and edified. Well, who are those all about? It's about me, myself, and I. Rather than recognizing that the church first exists objectively as a byproduct And the aim of the gospel, Colossians 1, you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. You can't be saved out of death and hell without belonging to an alternative community, the the kingdom of God, the people of God. And that finds itself in local expression. It has to manifest itself uh, in some way. That's one of the ways that pastors who are sending can help ask better questions. So as we wrap over the next five minutes, three minutes, three minutes, (laughs) this guy. (laughs) As we wrap then, so how else can pastors equip uh, missionaries better and engage in missions? Because I think a lot of pastors just feel like, I'm busy. I've got this couple I'm counseling that's living together. I've got this uh, neighbor across the street I'm trying to have over, like all these sorts of things. How can I do this well, recognizing that no one person can do all things well? And answer for about 60 seconds
2: each. I'll I'll try (laughs) to make it really quick. If you get your church to understand by preaching the word that there's this um, global commission that Christ has given to the church. It's amazing, it it will shake out some of the turning in on yourself that can tend to happen to members of the church, where they're constantly wanting to clamor about their individual issues, um, rather than thinking about the fact that there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who need to hear the gospel, and that we're gonna have to get past ourselves. We all have issues, we all have problems, And it's not—I'm not saying you ignore counseling those things or ignore pastoral—I visit all the members in my church in their home, and it's not a small church. Like, I'm very interested in pastoral counseling, very interested in pastoral visitation, those kinds of things. But when you give them a a vision for who Christ is, what he's done, and what he once announced around the world, they they realize this isn't all about me. And you do have time to then work with your missionaries. It's, It's not a question of whether you ought to take time to do it, it, you, you, you must do it. Christ expects his church to make him known in all the earth. It's a responsibility of your pastoral ministry. You're shirking that responsibility if you don't do it.
3: Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Uh-huh. Um, we, we, there's got to be good teaching, um, but we... Ha- there has to be good obeying behind the teaching. There has to be good uh, follow through and a a pastor modeling for his people, obedience to the gospel, submission to scriptures, even when they don't want to obey the scriptures, right? When I, as a pastor, modeled for my children that I was going to obey Jesus even if they decided not to obey mommy and daddy. And um, that submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to the authority of scripture, um, has to go hand in hand with the teaching of good theology. So I agree with the teaching of good theology, but um, that follow through piece of allowing that theology to inform your day-to-day decisions and in a, in a position of obedience, I think is crucial.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say a little more about this in my session tomorrow, but but I want to say reclaiming of the place of the local church in everything missions. Um, It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of obedience. Uh, Out of Acts 13, the Holy Spirit actually entrusted um, the Great Commission to the leaders of the church. We read nothing about Paul's or Barnabas' own calling. Um, It was a dialogue or conversation or transmission of command from the Holy Spirit to the leadership of the Antioch Church. So I, we, we simply have to see it as a, um, an issue of obedience. Um, you know. So good. Try to be quick. Uh,
5: I would really agree with uh, Chad's uh, statement there. One thing he didn't say, <clears throat> he's got a really strong missions committee in this church, and he backs those guys up. And to hear from the pulpit and to have a strong missions committee that is articulate, they know the gospel, they know the scriptures, uh, man, that gives potential missionary candidates people to go to. He does not have the time to lead all the mission efforts. No senior pastor does. You've got to get a senior, what do you call him? a missions pastor, a missions point person. That's critical to seeing a church really go forward with the Great Commission. Let me say one thing.
1: If you're a pastor here, you, you have a right to demand accountability from the agencies that are serving and are training your people. Do not like, give that up. So anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, would you please thank our panelists for joining us? And we
0: also thank want to thank the Baptist Church for hosting this event. We want to thank Radius International. And to get more content, you can go to missionspodcast.com. Thank you for being a part of this.